my father uh, told me the story of, of being a deacon at a Baptist church in, in the 1960s and 70s before funeral homes became the, the prevalent business uh, it is today. And the deacons of the church had to pull, you know, duty to stay at the church overnight to stand guard and in a way um, over anyone coming into the church to mess with the body. But my, my grandparents told me stories about deceased loved ones remaining in the casket in their homes for wakes and visitations. Um, you wrote that death care has long been well within the purview of churches and communities of faith. It is uh, only in recent century uh, of our long Christian history that we have largely abdicated this area of ministry to outside professionals. I, I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper there. I know you were alluding to that before, but kind of maybe thinking through the theological shift that's taken place there. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host, and this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. Go ahead and click that subscribe button and be sure to rate and review the podcast as it helps others find us. We want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters. Carson Fushi, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Carla Mike Wick, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. And before we move on, we want to give a special shout out to our annual sponsor, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Our guests for this right. week's CBF podcast conversation are Dr. Michael Parsons and Dr. Cody Sanders. Dr. Parsons is a professor and Macon chair in religion at Baylor University. Dr. Sanders is a pastor of Old Cambridge Baptist Church and the American Baptist chaplain at Harvard University and MIT. Michael, Cody, thank you for joining the conversation. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. So uh, I'm fascinated uh, to learn, um, Cody, uh, you know, about about your role, kind of this this, you know, split or dual role, but as we know, with all things in ministry, nothing's ever part-time, but, um, you know, caring and nurturing for this local community while also, um, you know, providing pastoral care to two of uh, the most reputable institutions in the United States. What's, what's that experience like? Uh, it's a really exciting place to be in ministry. The congregation I serve is a very vibrant, peace and justice-oriented congregation, uh, that's always lively and always really thoughtful and engaged. Uh, and then in my role at Harvard, I uh, work with students uh, across the university, uh, both American Baptist students and uh, a lot of LGBTQ students, and currently have the privilege of serving as the president of the Harvard chaplain. So doing a lot of the coordination of our joint work together uh, in the university. And at MIT, I serve specifically in the area of LGBTQ chaplaincy support for students uh, across the institute, uh, both places, just really fun, uh, uh, fun engagements with students who are, who are bright and doing incredible work and are going to make a big difference in the world. Anytime, uh, you know, I talk with somebody who is working with young adults, I'm always fascinated to see and learn from how that work is going these days. Of course, you know, we know all the talking points of, um, that we are in a post-church world and that oftentimes millennials and Gen Zers are missing from many congregations. But as I've found in my work, they might be missing from the institutional church in many regards, but they're not uh, missing from a faith journey. Um, so I, I wonder if you can give us a little insight into the the kind of work you do with young adults and what you're hearing from them these days in regards to, to faith. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the young adults I work with in these roles are people who are very interested in faith and their spiritual practices and um, 
And, you know, many of them do make their home in my congregation while they're at Harvard, whether they're in graduate school or they're, or they're undergrads here. Um, but what I've discovered, uh, especially in, in some of my work at Harvard in the last year, is just a really robust engagement with the, uh, the way that religion, faith, spirituality is a part of the holistic experience of, of uh, human life. For students, and there are especially a good many LGBTQ students at Harvard who have started a multi-faith uh, organization together that has been entirely of their own initiative, and I've been really privileged to come alongside them and support them in ways that I can, uh, as have some other offices at the university. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I know it's not uh, an interest for a lot of folks, but I think especially for young adults today in this particular generation, religion, spirituality, um, the integration of, of those concerns within their life is an emerging reality again uh, in some ways that are really exciting to witness. So you all have um, written a new book, Corpse Care. Uh, this book examines the ethics for caring for the dead. You wrote, what we do in relation to this stage of bodily becoming, the inevitability of our incarnation into death presents us with a number of theological questions. These are questions which very few Christian theologians, ministers, or faith communities have given any careful attention in the last century. Um, so I have to ask, you know, where did the concept of, of where was the concept of this book uh, born? Uh, well, uh, the the genesis of the idea really belongs to the to my co-author Cody Sanders. So, the the story of the of the book is an interesting one. I was on sabbatical at Harvard Divinity School in the spring of 2017, and I attended the, the old Cambridge Baptist Church where Cody is currently the senior pastor and got involved in the congregational life. And Cody and I would meet on a <clears throat> fairly regular basis just to talk about various things. And the last week, Cody says it was the last day I was there. I don't, I don't have it in my memory that way, but I, I trust that he's right. We went to coffee, and I just asked him what he was working on next, and he said, well, I've I'm, been I'm interested in this topic, what we do with um, the dead uh, as Christians. And that piqued my interest because I have an interest in, have had an interest in ancient perceptions of the body, and how we understand uh, the body, embodied theology. And so we applied for a Louisville Institute grant. We got that. We recruited two other team members, June Hobbs at Gardner-Webb University, who specializes in memorializing the dead and gravestone markers, et cetera, and Rochelle Martin, uh, who's a psychiatric nurse, but also is involved in the death home care uh, movement. And we, took some trips to some green burial sites um, in, in the southeast, in South Carolina and Georgia. We visited the burying grounds um, in the summer of 2019 uh, in Boston, so the oldest Puritan burying grounds. Went to Mount Auburn Cemetery, which is a natural uh, burial uh, place. Met with some clergy to talk about uh, death care. So oftentimes people in seminary, they're trained to deal with people who are going through grief at losing a loved one, so death and dying courses. But we don't spend a lot of time thinking or talking about the corpse itself. Mm, yeah. So a lot of the issues that ministers are being trained are how do you deal with uh, the issues of grief? How do you, you know, uh, perform Christian uh, funerals, et cetera? But, but the idea that the, that the corpse, the Christian corpse is revelatory, is something that at least in modern contemporary Christianity seems, as you've suggested, uh, an odd thing. Yeah. Uh, it's not odd if you look at the history of, of corpse care, but certainly it's something that our Jewish and, and, and Muslim friends have continued the practice of, of uh, traditional burials, but Christians lost that along the way. And we try to tell that story yeah. uh, in the book. Well, the book examines the history of American Christianity's relationship with the dead and caring for them. Why, why specifically American Christianity? Well, we, we really want the book to um, be useful and helpful to 
American congregations. And the Little Institute grant is aimed toward uh, American Christianity. We do start in antiquity, and we start with what early Christians understood was a responsibility for their dead. And we move very quickly through the medieval period, um, and then the Puritan, then, then of course when uh, the Puritans come and, and begin settling. Uh, but it, so there are two chapters that do the history, and it really does focus on the new world and co corpse care here and what happens when uh, indigenous people interact with um, settlers who've come in. Uh, the Civil War becomes a real turning point, pivot in the way in which the care for the for the dead is conceptualized, which we can talk about in a minute. But we really were focusing on the history to sort of understand why is the conventional burial today considered conventional when 150 years ago it would not have been. Yeah. So you take a body, you fill it full of toxic fluids, you put it in a metal or, or wooden casket, drop it in the ground in concrete, all of which is designed to keep the body from doing what the body is designed to do naturally, which is a return to the earth. Yeah. And we think that's conventional care. 150 years ago, our, our, our ancestors would have thought that was the strangest thing in the world, right? So why, why is it conventional now, and what are the op opportunities and options that stand before us as we look into the 21st century? It's not ecologically uh, very friendly to the world we live in, and for those people who are interested in ecological justice in their lives, when they come to the end, the things that we do around the body don't match what many people hold to be values up until that point. Cody? I've been thinking about this book for a really long time. I have had a really long interest in uh, death and dying, uh, in grief, and um, I I noticed, and particularly in my teaching uh, of seminarians around grief and death and dying, that most of our courses uh, do a lot of really good work on the process of supporting people in uh, in stages of dying and then do a lot of good work in supporting people who are in the midst of grief. But once a person has died, we stop thinking about the body after that and what comes. And for the last century or so, we have handed that aspect of death care over to uh, an industry of professionals who do that work for us. And this is such a break from the historical way in which communities and families have had a hands-on approach to caring for the dead. So I wanted to look theologically at what was going on when we uh, think about the dead body and what our theologies of the body suggest to us about what we might do with our bodies when they die. Mike was on sabbatical in Cambridge doing research at Harvard a couple of years ago and was an active uh, part of my congregation during that time. And on the very last day that he was in town, we had coffee together. And I told him the idea for this book that I had been dreaming up. And he said that sounded really exciting to him and he'd like to work on it together. So we got a grant and brought on a couple of other folks that we knew to, um, to work with us on this research and had a really good time for about three years uh, developing this idea into the book that it has become. So this book examines uh, the history of American Christianity's relationship with the dead and caring for them. Why specifically American Christian history? There's a, a particular cultural um, development of our relationship to the dead that I think is, it would be hard to examine um, in multiple uh, uh, contextual locations in one book. Uh, European Christianity has had a specific relationship to death care practices that are a bit different from the U.S. Uh, certainly um, in uh, Central and South America or on the African continent, Christianity and the death care practices have emerged together in ways that are quite different. So we were really looking at how the, the rise of the funeral industry in, uh, in North America has impacted the way we think about our bodies when they die and what we do with them. And some really specific times in American history 
uh, have made a big difference in that evolution. Uh, well, especially, you know, the Civil War, which really disrupted all of our death care practices that were typical up to that point and uh, sent us on a trajectory that we're now on, which we often see as just the inevitable way in which we deal with our dead bodies. But uh, we wanted to trace that history so that it was clear that what we do now with our dead bodies conventionally is not what we have always done with them and is not what we have to do in relation to them. There are other choices in this context that we can make. Yeah, Christianity has a, a fascinating history with the treatment of the dead. Of course, um, they viewed the pagan practice of burning the body as sacrilege, uh, even using as eternal punishment for for heretics long after they were dead. Of course, most of her familiar with the exhumation of John uh, Wycliffe's body, um, only to have it burned. So cremation, pine boxes, caskets, urns, what, what does your examination of American Christian history tell you about how we formed our, our current theology of corpse care? Well, very early on, uh, the Puritan influence over uh, over death care was uh, one that was really starkly different than what we would would think of today as Christian death care practices. Uh, Puritan varying grounds, which are all over the place here in Boston, uh, were very um, morbid, stark reminders of death. You would see on the uh, the gravestones uh, things like memento mori, remember you will die, or tempest fugit, time flies, the symbols of winged death's heads and uh, hourglasses that were turned upside down and the sand almost running out. So they were intended not to be places that people visited for the purpose of remembering their loved ones. That was really not something that they thought about in relation to uh, the final disposition of the body. They were meant to be reminders of everyone who walked by them of the grim reality of death that was coming and an invitation to examine their own relationship to God. So there are a lot of Christian uh, uh, ways in which that made sense to the Puritan mind uh, with the rise of uh, transcendental thought. Uh, and, and here in Boston, again, you can see that really clearly. Uh, this stark reminder of death started to shift and change alongside some other concerns of the uh, graveyards in, in Boston that were becoming full uh, public health scares related to the notion that um, noxious smells would cause diseases and things of that nature. This is before germ theory. Burials started moving out of the uh, city and into the rural landscape. And in those rural garden cemeteries, we see different forms of, uh, of Christian symbolism, crosses and anchors and angels and uh, things that really help us to reflect on the life of faith that a, a person might have lived. And we also see things uh, like in memory of, because the grave then became a site of memory and of relationship to the dead and a place where people would visit, unlike the Puritan burying grounds before. And then, you know, during the Civil War, when people were dying for the first time in huge numbers away from home and could no longer be taken care of by their own family members and communities, that's when we see this rise of uh, a group of professional men at that, at, that, at that time who were making a living on caring for the dead. Um, and that's where the practice of embalming comes in, which has become a practice that we uh, often employ today uh, with our, the care of our dead. But I think at that point, there were also ways in which uh, Christian communities stopped thinking as intentionally about what it meant to care for the dead within the community. And that process began being shifted to a group of professionals. Uh, and the, the purview of clergy at that point and churches was the funeral itself, but not any longer the care for the dead. Uh, and I think moving forward a bit in time, there are many congregations like mine who are thinking very intentionally and very critically and very faithfully about issues of, of environmental justice and climate change. And the prospect of doing something with our bodies that subverts our intentions and commitments and ethics around the environment and our relationship to it uh, is, is not a, 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 a palatable prospect 
So the rise of new practices like green burial and human composting and water cremation are becoming of interest to folks again, uh, who are now thinking about the care for the dead and not just assuming that what has been done to our parents, our grandparents, their parents, is what will be done to us? Well, that's a great question. Um, <clears throat> things really changed, I think, uh, and, and Cody has re recorded this in that part of the book, with the Civil War, because in an unprecedented way, people were dying away from home in the tens of thousands. And how do you get the body of the deceased back home for burial. So embalming was introduced, and that was a way, I mean, it was, it was a, a particular response to a specific trauma in our history. And up until that time, um, death care was basically something done at home or in the church. Often it was a domestic activity, so women were the ones who were basically in charge of preparing the body for burial. Uh, the men might, you know, help. But embalming became an industry. Um, Abraham Lincoln's body was embalmed after his assassination and taken around the country. And so very few people were embalmed in this country before the Civil War. Postbellum, it becomes um, the preferred way. Very few people were cremated at the beginning of the 20th century. That begins to change in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, and today, I mean, in the 1960s, a small percentage would actually have chosen cremation. Today, it's almost half and half. But, but cremation itself, I mean, a lot of people say, well, I don't want to uh, be embalmed and put into the ground. That doesn't seem like it's a, a, a good way to in, interact with the, with the earth. Uh, but cremation is a, is a high energy uh, enterprise. It, takes a lot of fuel to incinerate a body and you're left with cremains that are essentially inert. They have no, uh, <clears throat> uh, anything to return to the earth. So um, it's also, it probably seems to the person contemplating, you know, what to do with my body uh, after death, uh, the more convenient thing to do. Just, you know, cremate me and, and put me in an urn or, you know, don't, don't bother with me. And so there's a, there's a path of, and we've lost a lot of our memories of how to care for bodies. I mean, most, most people wouldn't know what to do. And so th those memories have been, and practices have been lost over, over time. Yeah. And the Christian church, the uh, green burial movement that has emerged in the last couple of decades, the, one of the reasons that we wrote the book is because the Christian church really has abdicated its role in that discussion. They really aren't participating in it to a great degree. You know, it's interesting to talk about, as a, as, you know, obviously read the book and then processing it, but also thinking back to my time in the local church. You know, a funeral process, it always felt like at some, in some regards that the church didn't have full control or say so of what's happening in a funeral proceeding. The, um, the corporate mechanism that is funeral homes today at some point takes control of that process and dictates uh, how things go. Um, you know, I think back at the times I've done funerals and the, you, do, you do a welcome and I had a funeral director come up right after the welcome say, now y'all turn off your cell phones and be respectful during this time or, you know, we've given a benediction at a gravesite. Next thing you know, he comes up and has to give instructions to the family. It, in many regards, it, it is a small representation of what you were arguing, but in many degrees, a, the church has lost its connectivity to what's happening uh, with care. Um, well, just think about the, the terminology we use. We used to call them undertakers, right? Taking the body under as, as a practice. Now we call them funeral directors or funeral home directors, which is uh, in a sense parallel to wedding directors. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we have handed that role yeah. as clergy over to the professionals yeah. and the there are many families that have been, when I was pastor in Kentucky, uh, the, the funeral home director, the undertaker there was, his, was third generation. And they, it was a vocation, it was a calling. But by and large, the funeral home um, is an industry that's now being run by multinational you know, companies, still have families that are involved. So we, we don't wanna 
you know, disparage the person who feels that vocation is to help families take care of their dead. But increasingly that has become professionalized and also uh, corporate. Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. My father uh, told me the story of, of being a deacon at a Baptist church in, in the 1960s and 70s before funeral homes became the, the prevalent business uh, it is today. And the deacons of the church had to pull, you know, duty to stay at the church overnight to stand guard and in a way um, over anyone coming into the church to mess with the body. But my, my grandparents told me stories about deceased loved ones remaining in the casket in their homes for wakes and visitations. Um, you wrote that death care has long been well within the purview of churches and communities of faith. It is uh, only in recent century uh, of our long Christian history that we have largely abdicated this area of ministry to outside professionals. I, I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper there. I know you were alluding to that before, but kind of maybe thinking through the theological shift that's taken place there. Well, we the book is structured with this sort of introduction, and then there are two chapters on the history of, of corpse care. And then the fourth chapter is on the theology of it. And I think it's there that we have really impoverished views of what the corpse has to teach us. Um, there has been a movement in the last 30 or 40 years, 50 years, in uh, feminist theology, womanist theology, and more recently disability studies to talk about body theology or embodied theology, to try to overcome this sort of Cartesian split between you know, the mind and the body where the mind is the higher and the body is the lower uh, and nothing is to be learned from the body. But even those, those studies were interested in what the living body communicated, and, and rightfully so. I mean, feminist studies, womanist studies are concerned about what's happening to the living body. But more recent works have not only left that sort of sense of urgency, but they've actually made statements to say the, the corpse isn't theologically revelatory. It doesn't really teach us anything. And that's what we wanted to push back against, to say that, look, uh, the corpse does have something to teach us. Uh, we, we, we use the phrase in the book, uh, we go from humus to human to humus. That is, there is, we think, built within us a desire toward return to the earth. We say ashes to ashes and dust to dust, but that's become basically an empty metaphor because most people haven't seen a corpse. Many people have never actually been in a room with a, with a dead body. Right? I can't, with all the chemicals in there, it can't turn into oh, Exactly. <laughs> we're, we're doing everything we can to keep them yeah. from, from doing that. And so um, it's that sense that the body, the corpse, is entangled in the web of life. Uh, we're not exceptional. Like all other living creatures, we are born and we will die. And there is a sense in which that desirability to return to that from which we've come. I mean, the scriptures teach us God formed us out of, the, out of the earth. So we have a section on the theology of dirt and that we are called to return to that. And so why would we uh, want to deny the body's desirability to do that? So we, the, the body in that sense is still doing work. The corpse is still doing work even in its state of being a corpse. Uh, to teach us more about God's world, our place in that world, uh, the, 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 the way in which we are entangled in uh, this web of life with other creatures. Uh, we want to skip past the corpse to life after. And of course, that's an important part of Christian theology, but it's the skipping over of that 
that probably robs us of understanding what the corpse still has to teach us in terms of what it means to be human and to be human in a world that God made and made us from that as part of the, the creatures of earth creatures, as it were. Mm, yeah. Well, the, the uh, Christian purview over care for the dead uh, had, had everything to do with who, who that person belonged to uh, in community, the family they belonged to that would provide care for that person through death and also after death, the church that that person belonged to uh, that would, you know, in this very, uh, you know, touching story that your father shared would, would go out of its way to really ensure that that person was cared for as a member of the community, even in death. And that bodies mattered. Uh, I think we have, we have come to a point at which, at which we have um, often said at least that our dead bodies don't matter to us anymore, that you can do whatever you want to with it. You know, that kind of thing that people kind of flippantly say, but we never actually do. We have a lot of really intentional ways of treating dead bodies. What we want to do with uh, with Christian communities who are thinking theologically about the dead body is to help them see the body uh, as a, a way of seeing our entanglement with the larger web of life. Uh, it's a very typical uh, phrase that we hear at Christ Christian funeral rites, and, uh, and at this point, Ash Wednesday is coming up, and we hear it there too, from dust you came into dust you shall return. This phrase is a biblical one. Uh, we, we find it in uh, Ecclesiastes, and we uh, and it harkens back to, to Genesis. And uh, we we say this phrase at funerals, or we at least used to, but rarely do we look at what the voice, the verse is really pointing to theologically. This is a message that subverts notions of human supremacy, bound up in theologies of practices and practices that draw on. Uh, the earth as a, a resource, and instead it allows death to become a really clear window into how we are intimately related to every other living creature. Through our movement toward death, through our shared uh, breath and shared entanglement with the, the earth itself, and through our return to the earth, to the humus, uh, which is, of course, connected to that Hebrew word, the uh, ha-adamah, the Adam in Genesis, which is literally something like earth creature, mud creature. So we want to help folks to think about the body in relationship to the communities that have cared for it in life and now will care for it in death and in relationship to the earth toward which it returns. Uh, and, and, and our liturgical phrases suggest this, uh, but our practices in the last century or so have gotten further and further away from actually returning the body to the earth in any way that is meaningful to the earth. You all picked up uh, on a fascinating period in the church's history during uh, the AIDS epidemic. You wrote the HIV AIDS infected body in life and in death was indeed treated like a thing, a dangerous thing that to be kept at a distance, refused into the company of the living, vilified in life and in death. Um, I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper into that uh, moment of history and then kind of maybe help our audience think through, you know, the version of that that they might not be aware of today. Hmm. Yeah, that's a point in uh, in our history that has, um, has a lot of narratives that we don't tell anymore uh, and, and a lot of pain uh, wrapped up in it when bodies living and then dead were often rejected by families and by communities and certainly by churches and even by medical establishments and treated with a real sense of, um, of disdain by the funeral industry at that point in the in history of, of funeral practice too. Um, and what is really beautiful about that uh, really uh, difficult period of history, especially for uh, gay men is the way that community grew up around gay men who were dying of AIDS, uh, who were not receiving the care that they should have received from medical establishments, who were, you know, quite clearly wanted dead by the government, who that which didn't 
uh, pay any attention to the crisis until way, way too late uh, into it. And community of other uh, gay and lesbian people, especially communities of lesbians who came up around uh, gay men and provided care for them. And this also was happening in death uh, when it was hard to get um, to get anyone to take care of dead bodies of men who, who died of AIDS. There were people in communities who would help to do that work and would help to navigate processes. They became really difficult. And I, you know, I think in many ways that 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 phrase that you mentioned, the dead body was treated as a thing, is is how we have come to see dead bodies in general uh, in many ways. We cited a couple of theologians in in, in the in the book who <laughs> suggested that at the point of at the point of death, the flesh of the body no no longer held, holds any theological interest or importance. And you know when we when we sit with the dying. And at the point of death, which I've done many times in my training as a hospital chaplain earlier on in my vocation, it's really clear when we see families interact with their recently deceased loved one that the body is not simply a thing, that it is, uh, it is the person, uh, even if they identify something of that person having departed from it, the body is still an important part of that person. It's the it's the uh, it's the flesh that enfolded them in, uh, in embraces, and uh, it's the flesh that took care of them as children. It's the uh, flesh that they have uh, identified as their loved one for so long. And so what, what has been very beautiful to, to witness in the last few decades is the emergence of home funeral movements, uh, people who have been uh, returning the skills of communal death care to families who want to practice that care for their dead, to keep their loved one in the home for a couple of days and let people come and visit the dead body of their loved one in the home, to practice washing the body and shrouding the body themselves. Uh, and there's a whole cadre of, of folks that go by various names, home funeral guides, death doulas, death midwives, things of that nature, who have been helping families regain the skills that we all used to have because that was how we always treated the dead. Uh, but we, in the last century, have become de-skilled in caring for the dead. And this group of folks are returning those skills to us in some really helpful ways. Well, I don't know if this, this answers uh, your question, but we treat bodies the way we treat. We treat corpses the way we treat living bodies, right? So if we think people are disposable in society while they're alive, it's much easier to dispose of them when they're dead. And that, that's true of uh, the HIV crisis. It's true of uh, enslaved persons. Um, <clears throat> so that's, that's part of this uh, justice issue. You, you want to know how easy it is to treat a corpse? Well, uh, poorly, look at how people have been treated while they're alive. So that's a that's an issue that needs to be dealt with, it seems to me. So, um, and the pandemic, of course, disrupted all of our uh, death care, traditional. Mm -hmm. Couldn't be with the body, couldn't go to the funeral, um, and that has been another disrupt. Uh, bodies were placed in, as you remember, refrigerated storage trucks. I mean, it was traumatic. So we can say as a society, well, just do with me what you want to with my body. But when we see a body being mistreated, there's still something in us that rages against that kind of injustice. And yeah. that needs to be nurtured, I think, right? Yeah. Uh, I guess lastly, uh, what kind of conversation do you hope this book will create within local churches? Well, we'd love to see um, churches talk about what can they do? Um, can we recover some of these skills that were necessary? Could you have a you know, a death care team that sort of helps a family. We have all kinds of ministries uh, for folks. Uh, could there be uh, um, people who learn these skills if you want to do something in the, in the home or you want to be a, of assistance? What can be done? And, and to talk theologically about what the corpse tells us. What do we learn about humanity, about being human, about in God's created world from thinking about the dead? Um, I don't know that it's so much taboo anymore because we see death all the time on 
TV, right? And 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 it's all around us. Mass shootings that have occurred just this just this week. So how do we how do we engender that discussion so that clergy and laity want to be a part of that discussion about what it means to care for the bodies in ways that are consistent with our notions of justice. And the you know, I'm thinking through, you know, I wonder, and this isn't something necessarily you'll tackle in the book, but it's maybe volume two. <laughs> but I wonder if there's some sort of uh, psychological and social intersection between our our desire to prolong life and the way that we invest so much money in health and care uh, with the way that we actually treat our dead, right? That we, you know, how often have you been to a funeral and it's like, oh, they look like they're just sleeping. They've done such an amazing job. And then, of course, actual chemicals they've pumped in the body so that they can open it up if they need to 20 years from now and the person looks as intact. You know, what kind of intersection of those ideas culturally um, have altered the way that we, we treat the dead or we care for the dead in this kind of way? Yeah, I mean, the, the whole industry to deny our aging, to deny our decay, to de deny our humanity, basically, which is all really tied up into the theology of incarnation, what it means to be human, right? Uh, and there is a, it's not just that we, we want the bodies to look like they're still alive. In many cases, the body isn't even present. We do memorial services, and we may have a portrait of the deceased, but the body isn't there, right? And that's becoming more and more prevalent in, in the communities around here. We don't go in deeply into the ways in which being present with the body uh, contributes to the grieving process, but there are certainly dynamics uh, are around that as well. So what, what does it mean? So um, <clears throat> the last chapter talks about options to current practices of cremation and uh, embalming. Green burial movement is one of those, uh, and we of course visited a couple of sites where the body's placed in uh, a wooden coffin without nails, so it's all biodegradable, or perhaps even in a shroud. Uh, there are different levels of green burial. One is a conservation level where it's a piece of land that's either trying to be reclaimed or preserved. So um, a couple of that we visited, the <clears throat> you have a burial, maybe with a stone, with a flat in the ground, and it's a place to visit, remember. Um, so that's, that's one option. There's also uh, water, what basically is uh, hydraulic uh, hydrolysis that uses high-pressured water and alkaline to, to decompose the body quickly, and you're left with basically what you would get with, with a, a body inflamed, but you do have some nutrients still left in the remains. Human composting, as it's commonly called, is, is uh, practiced in places where there's not a lot of land to do conservational burial. So Seattle has, is one of the few states that allows that sort of thing. So there, there are other options that are more eco-friendly, that may be more theologically rich when we think about what it means to, to care for the Christian dead. Um, so yeah, those are things that we explore with them. We don't advocate for one particular view of another, but we would like to invite clergy and churches to think about the life of the, of the saint is lived well, how best to honor that at the end of life. Maybe the family wants to be involved, uh, and there are funeral home directors or undertakers that will help families be as involved with the, you know, the care of the body as they want to be, sometimes burying, you're actually helping to dig uh, the grave or Put the put the dirt back on. I mean, there are all sorts of ways, and we describe different levels that one can participate in. Just inviting people to think both practically and theologically about what, uh, how best to honor the uh, the body of of our fellow believers. I wonder, as you think back over um, this project, um, how, how has your burial plans changed as a result? Yeah, I mean, as I've been thinking about this, I have, um, uh, one of the things we did was visit three uh, green burial preserves uh, in uh, um, uh, the, two, the two major ones. The first one in the country was in South Carolina, uh, Ramsey Creek Preserve, and the largest and busiest one in the country is owned by the Monastery of the Holy Spirit in Conyers, Georgia. 
uh, Honey Creek Woodlands. And these are not your typical cemetery that is just also practicing green burial. These are large tracts of land that are set aside for the for the process of green burial. That 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 means putting the body in a shroud or in a biodegradable container, burying the body directly into the earth, no casket, no vault, no grave liner, no embalming. And at the highest level, conservation green burial, there are no pesticides used. Uh, the, the tract of land is held in trust and is in perpetuity dedicated to uh, preservation through the act of green burial. And these are beautiful, peaceful places that we uh, got to spend hours in walking through. And we would see other people coming in and using these spaces as, as parks, basically. Uh, uh, places where they could get into the woods and have um, a peaceful walk, sometimes visiting the sites where their loved ones were, were buried and sometimes just enjoying this land. And that's sort of what they're, what they're intended for. And I certainly would would want that for myself if I am able to. Um, but I also am very intrigued by this emerging practice of natural organic reduction, which is also sometimes called human composting, uh, because in many big urban areas, uh, there are not a lot of tracts of land to use for green burial. And what natural organic reduction does is uses what we know about composting, which farmers have been using for generations and generations uh, with livestock that die on the farm. And uh, it uses uh, these really beautifully designed pods that are filled with all the kinds of things you would use to, um, to compost. And the body is placed into that pod and over, a car and over the course of, um, I think it's a couple of weeks, uh, the, the body is naturally broken down. And what results is that this very rich, um, basically truck bed full of compost that families can take and use on their property or in some areas of the country, you can choose to have that, that compost taken to a, an area of a, a preserve of some sort that, that is then used to restore that area uh, and its natural beauty. And so I think that's another way of doing green burial, but without the actual burying part of it, but it still works with the process of the earth to return the body to the earth in a very meaningful and nutrient rich way, uh, which of course, embalming the body and placing it into a casket and then into a cement or metal vault doesn't do. And, in, and also cremation doesn't do. Uh, so that those green burial or natural organic reduction would be what I would hope for. Researching and writing this book has has your burial plans changed? Not not to help you think about the finality oh, no, of absolutely. your life or mine, but you know how has it changed as a result of you actually going through this process? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I uh, we visited a, a an undertaker, a woman. There are very few women in the funeral home industry, but she was uh, in one of the trips we made, and she did all sorts of burials, but she did uh, help those who wanted to do a green burial. And she had some beautifully simple wooden caskets with wooden pegs. And so, uh, yeah, I decided that that's what I want to I want to do. I want to be buried probably in a conservation site. There's some around here in Texas. Most cemeteries now will have marked out a place to do more more green friendly burials. So yeah, it's, I've given a lot of thought to what kind of, of care for my corpse would be in a consistent trajectory with the sort of values that I've tried to hold. And I think that would, for me, um, Alan Culpepper, who's a uh, mentor of mine and was the dean of the School of Theology at uh, McAfee for years, is a woodworker. So I'm trying to convince him to help me make my my own coffin, and uh, I've got my own some places where I'd like to be laid to rest. But yeah, yeah. that's uh, and I'd like my family to be as involved as they want to be. But everybody has to make those decisions yeah. for themselves. We just want them to be informed decisions that are based on understanding why we do what we're doing now, what that may mean theologically in terms of how to understand this part of our life. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's why we wrote the book. 
Whatever as you think through uh, this book, um, what kinds of conversations do you hope um, it will create within local churches? Well, I think we have a, a way of avoiding talking about death uh, in many cases. And I think just the 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 intrigue of what we do with our bodies when we die as a conversation starter can get people talking about death in a whole variety of ways. I mean, we can talk together about uh, our wishes for our, the end of life and the kind of uh, things we want in terms of a, a living will or an advanced directive. Uh, I hope churches will talk about what it means to care for the dead and to cultivate funeral rituals that are rich and meaningful and theologically significant. Uh, and I hope that it will help people to think more carefully and critically and theologically about the environmental entanglement that we share with the wider web of life and all of the decisions that we make in our life uh, impacting that relationship to the earth, uh, including our death death care wishes. Uh, so a lot of really helpful conversations can begin when uh, a, a group of people comes around a book like this. Uh, and opens up a conversation about one of life's most significant um, events, which is death. Our guests are Michael Parson and Cody Sanders. The book is Corpse Care, Ethics for Tending the Dead. Cody and Michael, it's been a joy talking with you. Thank you for carefully and critically cultivating a deeply theological resource for formation around caring for the dead. Thank you. It was really, really a fun conversation to have with you. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks for the conversation. Before we wrap up, we need to tell you about one more of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. Are you looking for a Bible study resource for your church? Responding to an invitation from the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship of Virginia, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has produced Bible study resources that is available for free of charge. The study title, Faithful Curiosity, Five-Week Study of Luke and Acts, deals with three passages from Luke and two passages from Acts. It offers Bible study methods and provides two interpretive essays for each passage. The writers are BSK faculty, staff, students, and alumni. Download this resource for free today at bsk.edu backslash faithful. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF Podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. Go ahead and click that subscribe button. Be sure to rate and review the podcast as it helps others find us. Check out cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. And, uh, oh yeah, I think we mentioned that you should uh, join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.